Views and opinions expressed on this program are those solely of its speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of WMUA, its management board, or the board of trustees of the University of Massachusetts. For WMUA News, I'm Bonnie Chen. In the final installment of our Pandemic Series 2.0, we'll hear a variety of stories on varying topics, from the college application process to political elections during a pandemic. We have all that and more coming up. Stick with us. Applying to college is hard. But during this pandemic, there seem to be hurdles and roadblocks at every corner of the application process. And that poses a unique challenge for the incoming generation of college students. Kendall August and Delaney Augsburg are both seniors at Hopkinton High School in Hopkinton, Massachusetts. COVID ended their in-person schooling in the spring of 2020, right in the middle of college application season. Despite this, they both applied to multiple schools. And now, almost one year later, they finally have time to reflect upon their experience over the phone as they await for what they hope will be acceptance letters. After online classes, grade restructuring, and general confusion about the process, August and Augsburg are both glad to be done with it. So my guidance counselor had a Zoom call that was like going over how to apply to college. And I just randomly joined. I was just like, I don't really know what's going on. I'll join and that got me like everything I needed to know. That's Kendall, who never expected to strategize about one of the most important decisions in her life over Zoom. Her longtime friend Delaney agrees. Yeah, most of my information actually came from you and then my brother. <laughs> like no authority figure kinda was yeah. there. In that Zoom call that I joined, there was like seven kids on it. And if I hadn't joined that, I would literally have no idea what to do. August and Augsburg didn't know where to look for help. From the school, from their parents? Nobody had ever been through anything else like this. They felt isolated. And all of this was on top of a major GPA recalculation that the school put in place as a result of the pandemic halting in-person classes. I feel like I was always reaching out. Like there were so many like unknowns. Like I was always like reaching out and like trying to get the information, which was very difficult. Nobody got a more in-depth look at the troubles that students face during the application process than college counselors. Their job is to work with students to help them find the best school based on specific criteria. For Ruth Ann Cody and Sharon McDonald, both independent educational consultants for All About You College Counseling, the normal search elements of academic, social, and financial best fits suffer when a student is unable to actually visit a college campus. They were applying without getting a feel for the campus beyond what they saw online. Most of our students have not seen the schools that they've applied to. All of that work had to be done online rather than in person, obviously. So a lot of the students have received their acceptances now and they're just getting on campus. So it's kind of a backward way of doing it. Colleges adapted to the altered schooling environment by changing what was considered necessary in order to even apply to a school so as to allow students to still feel comfortable when applying. Test optional suddenly became the new norm, as many colleges realized that so few students would actually have the ability to take an SAT or an ACT. Extracurriculars at schools halted as well, forcing colleges to reanalyze what they give weight to in applications. 
I think the test optional was needed and necessary, but it also led to other questions and stresses for the students. Ultimately, this is all the choice of each university's admissions office. Mike Drish, director of first-year admissions at UMass Amherst, worked with the university and made sure that beyond the information on a student's application, the university also took into account all the changes a student's life went through. We put all of that information together and then any additional information a student chooses to send. We look at everything and a reader reviews everything and makes a determination based on that. UMass is test optional for the next three years to gather data about how the pandemic affected students, to see if the inability to take a standardized test reflects upon the incoming class's academics while they're at UMass. But in regards to the criteria that the university usually uses to determine a student's acceptance, little else changed. What initially sounds like a big shift actually in reality isn't that bad. Because when you remove a piece like the test score, you still have the vast majority of what we were already reviewing for an applicant. The biggest change was helping our staff understand to really focus on the balance of how has the student been impacted in the past? Um, because we want to take into account what's happened during COVID, but we don't want it to be completely dominating the review of the file either. UMass administrators hope to give every potential applicant the best chance of getting in and the best college experience. Our goal has always been to try to alleviate some of the stress and then with it being even more heightened, kind of trying to do even more. For WMUA News, I'm Hayden August. People tend to say cheerleading isn't a sport. Cheerleading takes strength, character, composure, teamwork, and love. Since COVID-19 hit the United States, the UMass cheerleading team faced adversities that shortened the season. Cheerleading consists of more than cheering at football and basketball games. The most exciting part of the season is nationals held every year in Orlando, Florida. UMass Cheer works extremely hard at putting together a routine against some of the top teams in D1A All-Girl. This year, Nationals is held virtually, meaning competing in front of a live computer screen. UMass head coach Colby Hall, current junior Melissa Francois, and ex-senior cheerleader Aaliyah Cowdery say what it's been like living life amidst COVID-19. Colby Hall coaches the UMass cheerleading team. She builds a strong connection with the program, changing it for the better. She rebranded and rebuilt the program from the ground up with loyal and committed athletes completely bought into the team. At the UMass basketball tournament last March in Brooklyn, New York was the beginning of what we now know as COVID-19. As soon as the tournament had ended, um, it was a weird and eerie feeling being in Brooklyn when that whole thing went down. Um, I just even remember going to get dinner the night before and you could sense something in the United States was gonna be different. Um, like we didn't even eat in this space because everybody was so freaked out. Like we took it back to our hotel and things like that. The pandemic impacts millions physically and mentally daily. It's important to take care of ourselves and act accordingly to how we feel. Cowdery was on the UMass cheerleading team since freshman year and attended the UMass basketball tournament last March in Brooklyn, New York. Since COVID hit, Cowdery rethought her decision coming back to the team due to cheer being a contact sport and COVID spreading like wildfire. I decided to quit cheer because since COVID, I started to fall like out of love with cheer. And then I also thought it wasn't really worth it when I have 
graduation and co graduation coming up and I thought I could focus on engineering instead. And like also on top of that, like mental health, like needed to focus on that as well. Since the pandemic, the world had to adapt to the new normal. The ways we as a society operate are going to change forever. Francois, current UMass cheerleader, explains how COVID-19 has changed the way sports operate. Practicing with a mask on isn't easy, but if it means getting to compete in nationals routine, it's worth getting through. But aside from that, um, it's still kind of weird. It's hard cheerleading with a mask on, um, especially when we're doing entire routines. Like breathing is pretty hard to do with a mask on while you're exercising. So that's something that's different. The protocol for getting the UMass cheerleaders back to campus safely and effectively was quite the process. Head coach explains the steps her and several other schools across the country had to take careful measures in bringing athletes back to campus. Step by step, all head coaches and sport administrators had to create pro uh, pro best practices for COVID. Um, and so what I did first, after we figured out we weren't coming back in the fall, we were transitioning to the spring, was figure out what of uh, my colleagues across the country, what they were doing um, and what that looked like because it looks different everywhere. Being a student athlete isn't the easiest thing in the world. Juggling social life, schoolwork, sports, and overall well-being is difficult at times. Francois says what it's like now with COVID and limited gym access. It gives us a lot less gym access time. So in the past two years that I've been here, we've had lifts twice a week um, in the weight room. And this year there isn't space for us because all the other teams have lifts. Division one collegiate cheerleading is far more than most think. Lifting 100-pound girls in the air isn't for the weak. It can also be a safety concern when factoring in a deadly virus. Cowdery took this into consideration when deciding to quit the team. Yeah, it was a concern of mine. Like, with cheer being a high-contact sport, we're always in each other's, like, personal spaces. Like, having to lift a girl up in the air, like, face-to-face. -face. It, was, it was just a concern of mine because it would be very easy to get COVID from that. People around the world have adapted and processed this pandemic in many different ways. For some, it means taking care of your mental state and well-being, while for others, it may mean figuring out how to hold two-hour practices with wearing a mask. Our reality will be different for a while, but appreciating the little things in life can go a long way. For WMUA News, I am Jordan Kamara. Up next, we hear about how parents are undertaking online schooling with their children and the hype over Animal Crossing. Shaking hands, kissing babies, politicians will do many things for a vote. When COVID-19 changed the landscape of the U.S. in early 2020, the personal touch of campaigning couldn't survive in-person restrictions. Adopted social media use and youth involvement broke new ground into political revolution. Yet, as electoral campaigning enters a new normal, young progressives wonder if their impact is built to last. The 2020 election cycle pushed gen organizers out of the classroom and in front of strangers' doors to advocate for their candidates. Swarthmore College sophomore Hannah Stern took off spring 2020 to canvas for the Sunrise Movement. That was basically just like all day canvassing for the primary there for Bernie. Um, in the primary and then like phone banking in the evening 
was I went to Austin and I spent like a week or two there canvassing for Mike Siegel, Heidi Sloan, um, and Bernie in their primary election as well. When hand sanitizer and face masks suddenly became daily accessories, Stern headed home to Philadelphia and toiled without any electoral engagement. Campaigns reassessed logistics and intimate voter conversations were swapped for a Zoom meeting, while unknowing voters answered contact calls. Election Studies, a nonpartisan campaign survey operation, tracks voter contact since 1956. The 2020 data saw a 10% boost in voter contact solely from Democratic campaigns. How can this be possible with previous campaign practices dismantled? Stern believes the accessibility of virtual phone banks is to the bank, despite her initial hesitance to join the platform. When things were all virtual, it was a lot harder for me to join a phone bank. In some ways, once you get like people committed, it can be easier to get them to keep coming because um, the logistics and the accessibility of a Zoom meeting means that like it's so much easier for people to to give that hour of their time. Lillian Gibson, a high school senior in Boston, found an electoral opportunity while casually scrolling her Twitter feed. Students for Mark advertise a Zoom phone bank. This student-led initiative intended to re-elect Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey against then-Congressman Joe Kennedy III. A few days later, Gibson discovered the Green New Dialers program on Instagram. The program targeted high schoolers to phone bank for Senator Markey. Gibson spent at least two hours a day making calls. She found Instagram outreach best suited to contact voters who wouldn't appear on her phone bank list, either due to lack of registration or party affiliation. That was a key tool in the reason why, Ed Markman, I think just having to have a campaign during a pandemic, I think that just puts up a whole lot of challenges, but it also makes it easier for people to be involved. Edward Cullen for Markey, Quabbin Fish for Markey, and Swifties for Markey. These group affiliations seemed unlikely, but marked just a few of the dozens of Stan accounts for the senator that popped up all across Twitter. Along with traditional users, these accounts posted fan cam videos, facts about the senator, and flooded replies with links to donate or phone bank. Gibson believes this effort reaped success due to the initiative coming solely from social media versus millennials. That's something that has to happen very naturally if they can find other, you know, more unique ways to whether that's dropping, you know, active blue links under tweets, that can also be a way for candidates to like, you know, raise money that is like a, a valid way and is a way that people aren't really thinking about. Ithaca, New York-based Chloe Moore propelled into the social media world Gibson describes when they became a social media manager on Anna Kellis, New York State Senate campaign. Moore studies American studies and literature in their first year at McAllister College. I'm not going to claim credit for the whole race. But we were the only campaign that had an up-and-running social media presence. This particular cycle proved unusual to those familiar with traditional campaigning. Lawrence Shulia operates Borough Strategies, a New York City political firm consulting candidates on field, fundraising, and campaign management. Shulia evaluates this cycle as a complete culture shift. One of the things I've seen on races lately is like when you're onboarding like new volunteers, new interns, it's really hard to create that energy that previously existed, like, where, you know, people would probably, like, live, die by the campaign. Julia disputes the claim that social media is entirely responsible for progressive candidate wins. I don't know if the social media traction is what pushed out votes for Marky. It's very possible. I, no one's measured it. I think social media is great. I think there's a bubble for social media that exists. For Stern, Gibson, and more, youth involvement means the future. 
What happens next remains to be seen, but certainly this unusual campaign cycle launched the potential of youth in politics. For WMUA News, I'm Julia Donahue. There's nothing I love more than playing video games with my friends, but I never thought a single game would capture my attention and energy like Animal Crossing New Horizons. Animal Crossing New Horizons released amid global stay-at-home orders. The game sold more than 30 million copies since launching in March of last year. I've owned New Horizons for a year now, and it reigns as the most played in my game library with over 140 logged hours. For those not familiar, Animal Crossing is a long-running Nintendo Life Simulator game franchise where the biggest concerns are building a home, making friends, paying your debts, and going about your daily life. Japanese game designer Katsuya Iguchi was inspired to create Animal Crossing series by the loneliness of moving to a new city, a feeling he experienced when he relocated at the age of 21 to work at Nintendo headquarters in 1986. I was introduced to the game by Grace O'Neill. I was so excited. I had a Twitter countdown account that tweeted every single day until the day of its release. Grace and I were roommates at the start of last year, just before COVID-19 would evacuate us from campus. We would squeeze onto our 3x5 carpet in front of our TV and play Just Dance in our dorm. In New Horizons, the player controls a customizable character who moves to a deserted island after purchasing a getaway package from Tom Nook. On the island, your character acts as the residential representative. Tom Nook, he's this raccoon, he's gonna try and sell you a timeshare, basically, that immediately assigns you thousands of bells of debt, the in-game currency. You're given open access to natural resources such as fruit and wood to collect or craft into furniture. The game provides plenty of goals and rewards to work towards, with none of the pressure of completion. End up on this deserted island with no clue on what to do. So you start off with like, no money. On my island, I fully upgraded my home, but none of my villagers are pressuring me to pay my mortgage back yet. Making it the perfect getaway from draining and demanding work environments. You can collect bugs and fish that you can decide to donate to the museum, swim the ocean, and eventually, you're given the option to alter the terrain of the island with terraforming tools. New Horizons offers zero-interest bell loans to develop the island with no penalties for not paying them back. Fellow UMass student Derek Driscoll got into Animal Crossing because his girlfriend at the time was into it. So I started to find out more stuff about it from her. Well, not necessarily open world, but you're, you're free to do what you want and you have hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans. Derek admits that he hasn't played the game in a while because he lost his Switch charger. It's in my room somewhere, probably under something. I liked how just like everything in it seems so peaceful and cute and like the, the villagers are adorable. You get cash from digging up holes, selling stuff. It's like, oh, that's so neat. Since launching, New Horizons added swimming, an art seller, the ability to dream, and seasonal holiday celebrations like Bunny Day a week-long event that scatters eggs around the island so you can find them. You can also interact with and collect villagers for your island. Not my villagers. All my villagers are really ugly, um, and I don't like them. Villagers often recur in different versions of the game. My favorite villager in all of Animal Crossing is a penguin named Cube. Um, he's the penguin like the little X's for eyes. Each with different personality types, birthdays, and even unique DIY recipes they can teach. And is he the cutest? No. Is he the most popular? No. But I love Cube. I had a Cube fan club with one other friend when I was young um, because we were just obsessed with Cube. And to this day, I always try to get him as one of my villagers. 
I just love Cube. He's a lazy personality. That's also one of my favorite personality types. As I played on, Animal Crossing became less of a resource management game and more of a game about creativity and customization. The hype around villages, it's like how nice they look, like how detailed they are. I got into the social media aspect of the game. Turning to Instagram, I found an in-game clothing brand called Animal Crossing Archives, offering in-game codes that allowed users to integrate hand-pixelated creation into their own islands. The brand is created by Connor Tomatoes, a Seattle-based artist. His Instagram account was dedicated to showcasing his in-game creations. I posted a few new pieces almost every day. In these little obscure design challenges I put myself through, it's what keeps me from burning out and keeps things fresh and interesting. And I always learn something I never intended to. The account gained a lot of traction, not just in the Animal Crossing community, but in the fashion industry as well. I ended up getting a little vice number out of it, which was crazy. I even got reached out to by brands like Marc Jacobs and C2H4, which was equally crazy just focus on kind of the little and small interactions like I just shot down a, a balloon attached to a gift box because I wanted to get a gift from the sky it's the little things I think it's worth curating and I like this experience because of that for WMUA news I'm Tamara Poe